Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. so frustrated right now why the shit just break around me because <laughs> you're fucking man handling it broken it's broken in so many ways this fucking thing it just doesn't it just gets unscrewed and i can't get it fuck i'm so pissed off <laughs> holy shit <laughs> fucking i don't know maybe i'm too abrupt or violent with things like too but things just things just break around me. You need to be nicer to them. You need to speak gently to them. That's yeah. That's Jung's thing there. When he did, I ever tell you that little anecdote? Carl Jung, when his pots and pans were falling out all over the place, and oh, I don't know just, this. He, yeah, it was at his as, at Bollingen. His um, he had this estate that his, he built his for retreat. Himself. Yeah, his retreat. Yeah, which was a kind of symbol of like it's just an architectural representation of his own psyche. And um, somebody went there with him once and he was dropping pots and pans and he just stopped everything and he, he, he just spoke to the pots and pans for like five minutes and let them know that he, and he, I haven't been here in a while. I know you're a little angry. Just try to behave. And then and it was okay. went well after. Yeah, you he know, just talked to inanimate objects. You know, I do that. Actually, I've taken to doing that and I didn't know that that was a Jungian thing. I do that with my computer. I yes. have all kinds of problems with my computer. And one day I was just having just endless problems. And I was like, okay, I realize I've said some harsh things lately. <laughs> Got to understand it's because I'm frustrated. I know you're doing the best you can. And I, and I started thinking about it. I was like, you know, I feel a lot of compassion for my computer. It's not its fault that it was designed this way. It was brought into this world, mutilated and crippled with this fucking touch bar. It didn't ask to be made with a touch bar. You know, you're making a very strong point here. It speaks to something. I think we were discussing this off the show, like not on the show. Uh-huh. I've always felt that my computers were intelligent, that they would react to me emotionally or react at least to strong emotion. Yeah. I feel I feel that's particularly true with Apple machines, mm. that they react to your um, emotional state. In other words, artificial intelligence has always been there. It's yeah. just that they're looking for it in the wrong place. They're looking for it in the in the interface, in the symbol the symbol system that they manifest through the interface, but in fact, maybe the artificial intelligence, maybe it's not artificial at all. It's just in the actual physical construct of the machine itself. Insofar, yeah. I would argue as it is an aesthetic construct. Yeah, but we'll get we'll, we'll get we'll get back to that because there yeah. are actually some parts in the two texts we read that deal with that. Okay, so I have that. I thought of a um, like a device, a pedagogical device to get our conversation going because we're talking about beauty today, and this mm. is one of my real hobby horses. Um, it has been my complaint for literally decades now that beauty is scandalously undervalued in the. Like the art scene, the academic scene, the intellectual scene. very Just the world, really, the, the society we live in. Yeah, really. there's very few people who will find a good word to say about beauty, at least in the highbrow end. 
You know, Dave Hickey, who I've mentioned a bunch of times in this podcast, likes to point out that there are vernacular practices of beauty that exist without the sanction of the Academy, and indeed that the Academy ignores where it can and scorns when it can't. Um, yeah. You know, beauty is just a fact of life. People like to think or carry on, especially, you know, Marxoids of various descriptions like to carry on as if beauty is this extremely bourgeois thing to interest yourself in. But in fact, as Hickey points out, the opposite is the case. It couldn't be further from the truth. So it's not like beauty itself has taken a holiday, but beauty as a concept, just the idea of beauty gets so little respect in the circles that I run in. Well, I think it's, I think it's pretty, I think it's endemic to most places, at least if we nuance what we mean by beauty. Oh, and, and the, I never got around to say what the pedagogical device was right, that I right. wanted to, uh, to employ. So this is something I do sometimes to get conversation going as I'll tell people, okay, so what's the crux the thing that you asterisk and underline and highlight and write multiple exclamation points, um, where in the author's argument does it all click into place? And it doesn't have to be a thesis statement. In fact, it usually isn't. Uh, usually it's the point where what's really at stake in a text becomes manifest. And I want to start with the Hillman. Uh, and we can jump back and forth. I mean, we're looking at two texts, James Hillman's little address, like a talk he gave called The Practice of Beauty, and a piece by Peter Sheldahl called, I think, Notes on Beauty, which I first saw published in The New Yorker, like back in the 1990s. Um, and we can jump back and forth between those texts. But the one I'm talking about here is Hillman's, which I think, to my taste, is the better of the two, or the, the one I liked the better of the two. Um, if you're playing along at home, this is in a anthology published right around 2000 called Uncontrollable Beauty, which is an anthology of pieces by different writers on arts and ideas about beauty and how it don't get no respect. Anyway, so in 270 of that book in Hillman's Practice of Beauty, he writes, if life itself is biologically aesthetic, and if the cosmos itself is primarily an aesthetic event, then beauty is not merely a cultural accessory, a philosophic category, a province of the arts, or even a prerogative of the human spirit. It has always remained indefinable because it bears sensate witness to what is fundamentally beyond human comprehension. And that was one of those moments I just felt like digging James Hillman up out of his grave and giving him a high five. <laughs> I'm just picturing the skeleton just exhuming his corpse and high-fiving it <laughs> and then putting it back <laughs> that's um, right I just just to do that yeah. thank uh, you sir uh yeah no I that was the crux of it for me as well but he's really builds up nicely to that mm. just before that passage he talks about discoveries that were made in the animal kingdom of really small animals that live, if I understood this correctly, that live inside these deep sea creatures. I got it right here. There are small oceanic creatures living in the interiors of the larger deep sea creatures or living below where light can penetrate, yet which present vivid colorings and symmetrical markings that can never be perceived in their habitat, nor by their own species, which have no optical perceptive organs. These patterns bear no useful purpose, neither for camouflage against enemies, attractions for breeding, signaling messages, 
staking territory nor lures for prey. This is, quote, sheer appearance for its own sake, or what Portman calls unaddressed phenomena. I love that. Unaddressed phenomena. Yeah, animal life is biologically aesthetic. Each species showing itself in coats, tails, feathers, furs, curls, claws, tusks, horns, hues, sheens, shells, scales, wings, dances, songs, if for its own sake. How similar to the ascetic idea of art for art, and if unaddressed and therefore non-functional, how similar to Kant's idea of the aesthetic as purposiveness without purpose. Sorry, long quote. His sentences do go on for rather a while, but I love that catalog of all of the different like things in the animal kingdom, you know, curls and claws and, and it, whatnot. It reminds me of the chapter from uh, Thousand Plateaus we read on the, of the refrain, which is very much about that, too. It's like how this innately aesthetic process is always at work in nature and that you can't really subtract the aesthetic from the business of evolution, from the cosmic scale down to the molecular scale. It's just there. Yeah. And this is this is the fundamental argument, I think, uh, or at least that's that's the place he's coming from in talking about the importance of beauty is the 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 fundamental ontological nature of the beautiful. Yeah. That the universe is first and foremost an aesthetic thing. Towards the beginning of the essay, he says, it's so strange that we don't speak of beauty. I mean, that psychologists don't speak of beauty in a world where everyone's attitude to life is predicated on aesthetics. Everybody lives an aesthetic life. Everybody lives their life as a story with meaning. You know, everyone compares themselves to fictional characters or artists or whatever. Everybody lives according to pattern, archetypal patterns that we get from narrative. Like, there's just no way to live a non-aesthetic life. And yet the question of beauty is almost uh, verboten in modern intellectual discourse. Yeah. We can't talk about it. But what he's saying there is that not only is aesthetics fundamental to human life, but aesthetics is actually fundamental cosmologically. Yeah. Um, to cosmos itself. And then yeah. he has this great passage where he's comparing the notion of cosmos, which he takes from the Greeks, to the notion of universe. Mm-hmm. Which, Romans, is, which is Roman, uh, Latin, which yeah. Is, which is very different. Like a cosmos in Greek has a connotation of fittingness. It is an mm-hmm. innately aesthetic concept. It's about how things work together as a whole synchronistically. Whereas universe is more like a bunch of things cobbled together to form a kind of system of parts. So mm-hmm. he's like, we have to bring back this idea of cosmos and this idea of beauty because according to Hillman, the, the thing we've actually repressed in the modern world is beauty, nothing else. What we, the, the goddess whom we've repressed and we refuse to acknowledge is Aphrodite. So I found that very compelling. And I, I agree with you that in intellectual circles, talk of beauty is almost non-existent. But even in if you look at our uh, urban engineering, the, the way our cities are designed, I mean, very little consideration is given to the beautiful. Yeah. In fact, none. It's an afterthought. Yeah. Beauty is ornament. Beauty is thought of at the end. Yeah. It's like the cherry on the cake that makes <laughs> this shitty cake look tastier. I have a funny story about that. When I lived in California for two years, it was my first job out of graduate school. I had a postdoc at Stanford, and we lived in Menlo Park, which is a little community right by Stanford. And Menlo Park had a 1% for art law like 1% of the budget for any building project had to be given over to art. 
and and it was very much what Hillman is describing. Like, you know, you figure out the zoning and traffic patterns and use patterns and all of these practical things. And then you bring an artist in at the end to decorate it. And if there's a budget cut, the artist is going to be the first to go. But this was one of those things where this was mandated. Like you have to have the little cherry on top of the turd cake. Yeah, exactly. And so it was so funny seeing the eye-wateringly ugly sculptures that were put up in random places. Ugly, ugly, ugly (laughs) sculptures. But right. it just plonked down. It just said so much like, there, there's your art, assholes. Right. There's one in particular that gave my kids nightmares. I, I need to find a picture of it and post it. But it's almost uh, beside the point whether the art is beautiful or ugly. Because even if you had like, you know, a perfect replica of Michelangelo's David in some parking lot of an Ikea, <laughs> it would be just as absurd and as ugly. <laughs> Like, you know, if anything, it would just draw attention to the ugliness of everything around it. Yeah. Like, the, the, the point is that beauty isn't a consideration from the beginning, which is exactly what Hillman's trying to say in this article. He's saying, because we've repressed beauty as a category, it doesn't come into uh, our consciousness at all when we do almost anything. And so you'll have, like, he's talking about economics. He's saying basically like, well, you know, art's expensive. So if we, like some people might argue that we can't build beautiful parking lots, you know, because if we were to do that, it'd be twice, the cost would be too high. But he's like, what's the cost of this ugly world we live in? The cost in health, mental health, the cost in time, the cost in just wasteful, useless um, shit we have to do to just exist in a world of drab grayness Um, or like paper thin walls that just fall apart. I mean, or like, you know, any cubicle farm that anybody in our listening audience has ever worked at with it's like, you know, that like gray carpeting that's like engineered so that you can spill coffee on it and not really notice. Like that's why it looks the way it does so that it hides spills. You see nothing but these monotonous textures that repel the eye. You know, why does it all have to be so fucking ugly? Oh, because it would cost more to make it beautiful. But here's something. It's just like sometimes ugliness seems to be like not a happenstance. Hillman wants us to think that art is not just the ornament that you add at the end of a construction project, but it's inherent. The same is true of ugliness. Ugliness is not a happenstance in the world that we live in. It's there for a reason. It's baked in. In a sense, we want ugliness. And this is something I've lived with for years, working in academia. One feeling that I've had for years, ever since I was in graduate school, for as long as I've been in academia, I've just asked the same question again and again. Why does it all have to be so goddamn ugly? You know, pointlessly ugly. But like, principled ugliness, like writing that is, it doesn't have to be that ugly, but it is. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking now of, again, of, uh, of just the urban landscape. Like it seems to me insane that in in a universe as beautiful as ours, on a planet as beautiful as ours, it seems, yeah, incontrovertible that any instance of man-made ugliness needs to be deliberate. It, it, someone had to want to make it ugly. 
Like there's some kind of reason why it's ugly. Yeah. It's not like the default is ugly. Yeah. The default of existence in this particular universe is beauty. Yeah. And we all know that. <laughs> all you have to do is take a goddamn walk in nature. Yeah. Or look up at the stars. I mean, and look at a human form. The, we live in a beautiful world. This is something the Greeks knew. It's not something the Greeks thought. It's something the Greeks knew. Yeah. They knew that we lived in a world surfeit with beauty. Yeah. And almost all cultures throughout history have valued the beautiful, have placed it at, at the pinnacle of interest. Mm-hmm. And you can look at ancient China, medieval Japan, uh, the Romans, the Greeks, any traditional architectural setting you care to name in the world is probably going to be pretty nice to look at compared mm-hmm. to the world that we've constructed around us. Mm-hmm. And there's no real reason why our world is so goddamn ugly, except that there's there needs to be some kind of political motive behind it, is what I mean. I'll tell you something else. This is a parallel to something that we said in this show a number of times, talking about spirits, entities, ghosts, gods, ideas of discorporeal entities. You know, when we started the show, the basic idea was let's talk about ideas that are hard for us moderns to think. And discorporeal entities, that's something that's hard for moderns to think. Like if I go to my colleagues and say, oh, so... uh, What'd you do this weekend? Eh, spent some time talking to the gods and the ancestors. How about you? Right. Uh, you think I was fucking crazy. Nobody does that. I mean, that's not true at all. Lots of people do, but we keep quiet, right? In the modern epistem, in the modern way of thinking, a world evacuated of gods, of ghosts, of spirits, of entities is normal, quote unquote. You can't see this, listeners at home, but my fingers are making the twitchy air quote sign. That's what's normal. What's not normal are all those, you know, primitives, those savages in other cultures. Well, very few people would use those words today. No, and this is one of the great buried hypocrisies of modern life. So we're never going to admit to believing our culture to be superior to anybody else's. In fact, I, I think a lot of people in good faith believe that there are many ways in which the culture that we live in is quite inferior to those of more traditional cultures located around the globe. Except when it comes to metaphysical stuff like this, where you think somebody who talks to gods is crazy. Well, what about the people in all the societies around the world do that? Are they crazy too? Either you say yes, in which case you are holding yourself and your culture to be superior to those people, and those people are, you know, savages, they're primitives, or else you say no, in which case, then why is it so hard for you to believe in the possibility of spirits, ghosts, etc.? Or else... Are you suggesting that it's true for them and the absence of an enchanted world is true for us? Well, then are you suggesting that there are multiple realities existing side by side in the same globe? And once you start asking those questions, people just want to change the subject. The fact of the matter is this is something that people think without thinking too much about it. An unexamined contradiction of the modern mind. Right. Thought A, no culture is superior to any other. Thought B, if you think the way any number of cultures outside the North Atlantic West tend to think about discorporeal entities, you're crazy. Well, which is it? Okay, and we tend to just bury the contradiction. One of the things we talked about repeatedly in the show is how actually we're the weird ones. Right. Like it's almost every other society on the face of the planet that finds 
room for an enchanted cosmos, a cosmos full of spirits. It's just us. And notice we're also the only ones who create environments of such spectacular ugliness, like ugly on purpose. And what's interesting in Hillman is that he's suggesting that there's a connection. Right. I don't know if he comes out and says it exactly, but it is strongly implied in this text. Oh, he, he does say it exactly when he's talking about uh, the economic cost of a repression of beauty and also um, how the repression of beauty has resulted in our being blind to the beauty of the world. Mm-hmm. For example, he decries the Gaia hypothesis as being insufficient for rekindling faith in this world. And I find the Hillman, I've always found the Hillman and Deleuze those very, very similar thinkers. Hmm. Uh, and one of the things that, one of the big messages in this text by Hillman is that we need to um, believe again in this world. And that was the great cry from Deleuze. And uh, to believe again in this world, he has a nice way of putting it. He, put, he says, we need to um, replace faith in the invisible with trust in the visible. Mm-hmm. In yeah. other words, the world as it appears to us, that is where reality resides. And the Gaia hypothesis with its preoccupation with microorganisms and geological time and all kinds of factors we can't possibly observe in our lives is actually an, another abstraction. But he does talk about how the repression of beauty has resulted in an ugly environment. And the ugly environment serves, uh, he says it, and when he talks about the new fascism, which is on TV. And, uh, you know, so he was a very political writer. Yeah. But um, and one of the things he enjoins at the end of this essay where he's saying, well, what do we do about this? He has a little list of things we can do. And one of the items is do not neglect or forget the gods. This was the essential commandment of the Hellenic world. We humans were not asked to have faith as with the Christians or to obey the law as with the Hebrews. We were asked not to forget or neglect the gods. Surely this caution has some relation with the role of beauty in Hellenic culture. But how? Right. Perhaps it means that art, as anything else we humans do, remembers the non-human and immortal powers as the gods were defined in antiquity. And he thinks of gods, I think, not just as gods. He thinks of them as like principles. Mm-hmm. Archetypes, literally. Yeah. That's what he, yeah. Except I want to just point out that very few people in the West, I think, I think it's a rel- no, maybe not very few, but it's a minority that lives in a truly disenchanted universe. Mm. They're a powerful minority, but I, th- I don't think most people in the U.S. and Canada and Europe, maybe in Europe, it's a little more rampant. This type of anti-clerical secularism, but uh, I think. Oh, I would say it's, then, I would I would say there is nothing more clerical than this kind of secularism. But go on, because I, I want to get anti-clerical in the in the technical historical yeah. sense. But these people, but these people are the you know the the Dawkins types. They're the priests. Actually, I think you're quite right. I think the cultural condition we're in is is sort of like medieval Europe, where most people are Christian, but they yeah. also you know obey sort of little folk customs that come from the pagan world and they still leave, maybe leave a dish out of milk out for the fairies or, or something. And, right. the, and the priests are always fulminating about this, about how the common people are always backsliding, right? worshiping various nature gods or thinly veiling their worship of uh, very smaller deities behind idolatrous practices. 
but it's the priests who are always like, no, you know, you need to adhere to the one principle by which we are structuring everything. And the people pay lip service to that. And when you ask them what they believe, they say that that's what they believe. But in their actual lives, if you're not in on the racket, if you're not a priest, if you're not part of the the apparatus that enforces the ideological homogeneity, yeah, you backslide. On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you believe in ghosts, but you don't admit to it. You don't talk about it unless you've had a few drinks or you've gotten slightly high at the end of the day. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, except that, again, there are many people talking openly about believing in ghosts. I mean, those ghost hunting shows are super super popular. People believe in yeah, ghosts openly. Yeah, but again, you know, it depends on what part of society we're talking about. I mean, to some extent, I'm working off some of my ill humor about academia because academia right. is the priesthood, right? I'm like a Satanist priest. I'm like one of those medieval priests who would sneak off with a host and perform black masses. <laughs> like I'm still a priest, but, yeah. but I am working evil. You're a heretic. Yeah, I'm a yeah. heretic, at least according to the canons of... Because, I mean, for one thing, I believe in beauty. And let me tell you, I, I mean, some people might be listening to the show and saying, what the fuck are these guys talking about? Who is against beauty? Because I think there's a lot of parts of the world where, or a lot of parts of society where, you know, you might say, yeah, my office is really ugly, but like, I don't know anybody who's like against beauty, who's, who doesn't believe in beauty, but... You know, I think the closer you get to academia, the more that kind of belief goes without saying. And it's probably worth enlightening our audience, those who are not, you know, acculturated to uh, to the priesthood, the, the academic priesthood. Um, you know, why, why would somebody have a beef against beauty? What would be the complaint? Well, yeah, that's where I was going to go. Um, look, I, I think that First of all, we need to define our terms if we're going to be talking about beauty, because I, I think you're right that a lot of people might react that way. But I don't know if what we would agree here in the context of this conversation constitutes beauty would include everything that people commonly call beauty. Um, so I think it's important that we we figure out what we mean by beauty, and then it'll be easier to see why it would be repressed. Okay. So um, there's a type of beauty, you know... Let's just let's just break it down quite simply. Kant had a very uh, straightforward, for Kant anyways, argument about what constitutes beauty in the third critique. And basically what he's saying is that there are beautiful things and beautiful things are things essentially which uh, conform to our expectations of how things should be, right? Um, so a beautiful landscape, cows grazing, a little farmstead in the distance, blue skies, beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's what he called the sublime, which is a beauty that uh, strikes us at precisely for op the opposite reason, because we cannot, we don't have a concept for it. So a mountain that's so huge that we can't even begin to face, so like this kind of magnificent, uh, splendid, uh, powerful mountain in front of us, or the starry sky at night, these things that are so big that we are, we feel dwarfed by them and our concepts are inadequate to what they are telling us about the world. So um, there's, there's that. And then there's the way that these two concepts of beauties have evolved through time. It's something I wrote a lot about in Reclaiming Art. And, um, there is a kind of cosmetic beauty, which is very much present today and a consideration on every level, 
which doesn't, according to Hillman, or at least especially according to uh, what's his name, Sheldahl. Sheldahl, um, uh, doesn't constitute beauty at all. He says so. Sheldahl writes, um, the merely attractive, the pretty or glamorous. And the merely pleasing, the lovely or delectable, are not beauty because they lack the element of belief and the feeling of awe that announces it. And I feel that very strongly. Um, so there is a kind of uh, prettiness or pleasantness or um, pleasurable appearance, delectability, that actually has nothing to do with the experience of the beautiful in the, ter- in the terms yeah. that, that Hillman wants to frame the, yeah. the question. Um, so I think that most of the time when these guys that we dig talk about beauty, they're talking about what Kant called the sublime. But I don't think they, that means we should call it the sublime because I think it was Kant who was wrong to make that distinction. Mm. My, pers- my belief is that what he called the sublime is the nature of beauty in and of itself. Yeah. And, and the reason why Kant made a separate category for hu- humanly beautiful things, pleasant things, humanly pleasant things, is because Kant had a system where the entire universe was structured according to human expectation. So th- the things that escape it are the things that hint at the relativity of the human. But for Kant, there was nothing other than the human. We were stuck in the human. There yeah. was no other universe. The sublime was just basically hinting at the fact that even this human universe is contingent ultimately because it's contingent upon thing in itself it is nevertheless the only universe there is but in fact what i believe and what i think i'm reading in both these texts is that beauty is actually what calls you to the immediate realization that this universe is not restricted to the human and not restricted to human expectations and beauty is always an encounter with the other where the thing the, the object of beauty asserts its own equality to you, its own existence in front of you. And there's always um, a sense, this is something from George Santayana's wonderful book, The Sense of Beauty, is that when you encounter something beautiful, it's pleasurable, but the pleasure is a quality of the thing itself. It's the thing itself that's telling you what it is. It's not you projecting onto the thing, your ideal of beauty. So beauty is something that comes from outside the human into the human world, not something that's concocted in the human mind and projected outwards. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a huge turnaround. Yeah. That's a completely different way of yeah. conceiving it. And to bring it back to like, okay, so why is beauty in such bad odor? Um, The metaphysical picture of the world that is simply assumed in kind of high value intellectual precincts. Um, The kinds of ideas that have what Pierre Bourdieu called cultural capital, things that have prestige, that have high value, where if you're working with these ideas, you'll get your book published in a university press as opposed to like an occult publisher or whatever. Um, Those ideas assume overwhelmingly a kind of Kantian worldview. And the idea is always that beauty is a human construction, that it is merely something that human beings project into whatever it is they see. And so in the postmodern academy, which is interested above all in how human institutions and discourses articulate power. You know, say a feminist critique of you know, the very notion of beauty is going to say, okay, well, beauty is not a property in the universe, the way Hillman, for example, discusses it. 
beauty is just how human beings are relating to certain things. We call certain things beautiful. So a feminist is going to be interested in saying, what are the politics by which things are judged beautiful? Think about a beauty contest where women have to parade themselves in certain prescribed ways, you know, go through the swimsuit part of the competition. And then there's the ball gown part of the competition. And all of these are always already, I mean, for one thing, human constraints, they're human constructions or contrivances uh, that have a history. And that history is one of patriarchal power to define women in certain very rigid and predictable ways. And then from that point of view, those become instruments or a template for the construction of certain ideas of beauty. And that beauty is doing the work of patriarchy. You're creating a discourse of beauty that is a discourse of power. It, it works to define women in a certain ways, to def define what a woman is supposed to look like, how a woman is supposed to walk, how a woman is supposed to talk and act and defer to other people. But all of this is happening for reasons of a human, all too human sort of power politics or power yeah. dynamics. I, I buy that too. I mean, I've, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The problem is that then there's an idea of beauty that's bound up with that, that is radicalized as like, that's what beauty is in itself. And that's the Kantian flavor of it, because Kant's, this is Kant's idea of the, the noumenon. He's not denying that there's anything outside of human perception. He's like, oh, yeah, there is. There's a thing in itself. But you can't know it. You can't even think about it, because if I, even if I say the thing in itself, that's a human way of wrapping your mind around it. But the thing in itself is actually floating free of anything. I mean, um, for some reason, I'm thinking of the uh, the legend of King Midas, who unwisely right. asks to, that everything he touched turn to gold. Well, think about it for a second. That means that you can't eat. Like if you pick up a sandwich, the sandwich will turn to gold. Well, you can't eat that. But even if someone was going to drop food in your mouth, the moment it touches your tongue, it turns to gold. So you can't eat that. And so like nothing from the outside can get in. And that becomes like kind of almost a a way of thinking about Kant's idea of like the, the human being fated to be completely self-enclosed in the human sense world and the human cognitive world, right? Right, right. And so like if human beings really are fatally confined to what the specular realists call correlationism or the correlationist circle, uh, then... I mean, what Hillman says about the cosmos that uh, he says, suppose we were to imagine that beauty is permanently given, inherent to the world in its data, there, on display, always, a display that evokes an aesthetic response. To a mind conditioned by Kantian categories, you're like, okay, if there's a display, though, it can only be a display for humans. Right. In which case, it's not of the universe itself, it's of the human world. And that means that everything we could possibly call beauty is assimilated to that human, all too human world of power politics or of a political and politicized discourse. Exactly. But then the problem you have once you've made that move is that beauty becomes indefinable, impossible to define. If beauty is purely a construct and refers to nothing, 
then its existence becomes so otios, so superfluous, that one would wonder why it exists at all. And um, that's been the problem in aesthetics is that no one can define beauty. And one of the reasons why uh, beauty was jettisoned from the from the discussion uh, for a while was that nobody could agree on what it meant. Uh, but nobody can find a basis for beauty within a correlationist universe where yep. there's nothing outside the human. The problem also is that, for example, let's go back to the uh, what you were saying about the, the, the beauty pageant. Yeah. So what's the problem with that? The problem with that for me is that beauty always comes to be defined in general terms. But beauty, as anyone who's experienced it, which means everyone, uh, knows with a bit of introspection, is that beauty always concerns the particular. Nothing's ever just a beautiful thing. Something is always beautiful in this moment, at this time. This particular thing, that particular event, that particular face in that particular light. Beauty is an event that happens at the level of the absolutely singular and of the particular. So the problem with the pageant is that you're stripping away the particular, you're defining a general idea of beauty, and then expecting particulars to conform to mm, this general nice. idea. It's the, it's the opposite of beauty. It's the, it's the scientification of beautiful. Yeah. And it's exactly what we mean with, with the word cosmetics. That's exactly what cosmetics means. It's basically the difference between oil painting and graphic design. It's like they're absolute opposites in that sense. Another thing is that in the Kantian world that we all kind of have to cope with right now, less and less, but still, uh, is that beauty is in inextricably subjective. Whereas beauty is one of the few instances, and Kant himself acknowledges this in the third critique. He says, beauty is always experienced as objective. You don't experience something that is beautiful for you. You always experience something as being beautiful in itself. That's precisely what the experience of beauty is. Uh, beauty is always the experience of a thing as it is. And uh, I mean, uh, I think uh, Sheldahl says this at one point. He says, um, beauty is a willing loss of control surrendered uh, to organic process that is momentarily under the direction of an exterior object. The object is not thought and felt about exactly. It seems to use my capacities to think and feel itself. And um, uh, Roger Scruton has this beautiful passage in his book on beauty where he uh, compares the appreciation of beauty to a kiss. He says, when you kiss a mouth, you're not putting your uh, buccal aperture against another buccal aperture and then letting some fluid move between the two apertures. That's not what you're doing. You're actually calling, and the way he puts it is just beautiful. He says, to kiss that mouth is not to place one body part against another, but to touch the other person in his very self. Hence, the kiss is compromising. It is a move from oneself towards another and a summoning of the other to the surface of his being. A summoning of the other to the surface of his being. This is, if you see um, a beautiful sunset, to take a classic example, it's the sunset itself, in itself, without you, that it, it affirms its own beauty. It's not like, wow, I really like this sunset. The sunset it reveals itself in the most objective way possible. In other words, the experience of beauty is always the most objective experience you'll ever fucking have because beauty is precisely the moment where you end and some other thing asserts itself before you as being uh, real and present. There are other examples. You could talk, we could talk about terror or other things, but beauty certainly is an instance where 
uh, the objective asserts itself, the real as being bigger than you, just not reducible to your own subjective um, structure. But that's unthinkable in a Kantian context. So once again, yeah. we have to go into a metaphysical mode to be able to, to be to be able to conceive of a world where such things is, are possible. At the same time, at least once we've made that move, beauty is thinkable. The pro the reason we've repressed beauty is because we can't think it. We can't make sense of it, even though it continually asserts itself in our lives, and we all know exactly what it is. We can't talk about it because our metaphysical system doesn't allow for its existence. Yeah, and this is, I think. The point of Hillman making the distinction between the Latin origin of the word universe, which is universe to, to spin, um, to revolve upon a single point. And so Hillman says this speaks of the Romans' weakness for the idea of a, a universe organized around a single axial principle, you know, of, right. of lawfulness, obedience to a central law versus the idea at the heart of the word cosmos just, you know, fittingness, a fitting pattern, um, right. Uh, right arrangement. Which implies multiplicity. I mean, the, the word cosmos as a fitting arrangement implies the existence of many different things existing together. Yeah. And I'm saying a lot of very rude things about academia these days. I'm sorry, academics who listen to this show. I don't mean you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, to get back to this idea that Academics are sort of the priests of a secular society. We fulfill a priestly role. That priestly role to me is the idea of like, I'm going to be the authority over your experience. Yeah. That's exactly what a priest is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you go to your priest and say, I talked to God, I had a vision of God. And you're like, no, 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 you didn't. Let me tell you what that was. That was the devil or whatever. But like, you know, it's a matter of very considerable importance to regulate, um, for example, access to the divine. Uh, and if you say, that, well, this was my experience, you say, well, hmm, that's just your experience, but your experience can be mistaken. But it could be in a secular society. I saw a ghost. No, you just think you saw a ghost. Uh, yeah, no, actually, this is an example that I think Dawkins has in one of his books where he's like, well, you, at first you think you see a ghost, but then, you know, I, I hear an eerie moaning and I see the curtains move, but I get up and I examine it and I realize that the curtains are moving because there's a draft and there's a moan because there's a whistle through the keyhole. So I discovered that what I experienced as a ghost was actually physical processes that I simply hadn't understood well enough yet. And, you know, this is, I mean, I'm not going to negate that, actually. I think that this is true that very often we are mistaken in our experience. But, like, to talk about the aesthetic experience as a singularity in which we are stopped in our tracks, a point that Sheldahl and Hillman agree on, that there's something of stopping that happens in authentic aesthetic experience, that you were stopped. Yeah, aesthetic arrest, as James Joyce puts it. Yeah, I know that I had an experience of the beautiful, of the beautiful that goes beyond me because I felt that moment of arrest. And you can always say, always, in every instance, well, you thought you did. Of course. That's just your experience. But you could say that about, you could say that to a quantum physicist coming back from the Large Hadron Collider saying, I just saw two particles get entangled. And you could just, you could say, you thought you saw that. I mean, it's just, it's not even a, an argument. No, but you couldn't because... In science, you have third-party confirmability. 
No, I don't, but there's a lot of interpretation. Like you saw it, but then so did 12 other guys in the lab with you. And plus there's recordings and, you know. Right. But okay. So the next time you report a ghost and someone says that, you say, well, I've got uh, every culture other than ours behind me here. Supporting my belief. I mean, it's like, and that actually is to me a strong argument. And yet, as I said before, it vanishes right. partly because there's a cognitive dissonance there. It doesn't work with the the theology of the modern that we all have in our head. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a what they call a cognitive dissonance. And if you experience such a thing, it's very easy to make it go away by like not thinking not thinking about it very carefully. key text, I think, here that we, we probably should have both read, um, and maybe we should do another show on it sometime, George Santayana's The Sense of Beauty. No, I would love to One, do that, wonderful, yeah. wonderful little book in which he, he makes, I think, what I think is a very compelling argument about the primacy of the aesthetic for any type of judging, any, any human existence you could think of. So... Um, one of the things he says is that even a love of truth is at bottom an aesthetic thing because what makes a particular truth matter needs to be some kind on some level. There are moral judgments and aesthetic judgments, but he argues that moral judgments are always predicated on, neg- on the negative and only aesthetic judgments are pr- predicated on the positive. So what he means by that is that when you have an ex- aesthetic experience of beauty, it is always a positive experience. There's always a more. There's a kind of, it's kind of like the, the reality becomes expanded a little bit. Whereas moral judgments are always about avoiding evil. They're always predicated on lack, on a negation, on avoiding suffering. And so what he's saying is that all the, of our moral structures including the moral structure built into that response, you thought you saw that. Because ultimately, that's a moral argument. You're saying it's wrong to believe you saw that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, and so any type of moral judgment is ultimately rooted in some kind of aesthetic apprehension of values. In other words, the fundamental basic water in which we fish swim is aesthetic. And there's just no other way to uh, to cut it, there's no other. There's, there's never been an argument that's managed to um, to do away with that fact. For example, um, like I've mentioned before, you could have someone win a prize in the science community for proving definitely that there is no uh, life after death. That you can even like say somebody came up with a mathematical equation that proves that life is meaningless. Mm-hmm. Let's just say, okay, it's absurd, but let's say it happened. Mm-hmm. They win a prize. Well. Insofar as they pick up their prize, they are still asserting some kind of meaning, uh, some kind of aesthetic dimension to life, some kind of aesthetic dimension to the universe in that they believe that their equation is worth putting out there. Mm-hmm. Any assertion of meaning is in itself rooted in some kind of aesthetic apprehension of existence. So there's just no way out of affirming the fundamental ontology of aesthetics as the very 
fabric of our existence. And I'm using the word aesthetic to include like meaning and significance and, yeah. and, and worth and ultimately what we mean by beauty. Now, um, here's another problem. And then I'm going to jump back a step back when we were talking about the, the beauty contest. And I right. love, and I loved what you said about how this is the idea of like trying to scientize beauty to come up with this, with general principles um, yeah. that fit into our orderly universe. Um, and uh, that beauty is always singular and it's always plural. It pertains to this particular moment or this particular piece of music or this particular person. Now, there's another argument or not argument so much, but a reason for feeling very uneasy about beauty, which is to say, yes, this is true. But the vessels in which beauty manifest are thereby unfairly privileged. So think about it just in human life. If you say that beauty is like a thing that's real, some people just are beautiful and some people just aren't. That's a hard thing to say. I mean, to say that is to suggest a reality that is almost sort of fascistic. I mean, it's sort of like, well, if what you're saying is true, then you're just sort of saying that the universe is a spectacularly cruel place because, you know, beauty doesn't manifest for any logical, rational, utilitarian reason. It just is. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Well, where's the fairness in that? Right. Well, the, uh, yeah, well... And we all experience that too, socially. There's some people who are physically beautiful and everything goes their way. I mean, there's scientific research that shows like people who are physically attractive get all kinds of completely unearned benefits. They earn higher salaries. People trust them more, even if they're complete, you know, lying sociopaths. Yeah, no, I don't buy that because I believe that that always involves a, a definition of beauty along general terms. And that's not real beauty. I mean, we've all met people who are good looking, but the more you know them, the less good looking they become. Yeah, and true. You have, you have met people yeah, very like that. true. And yeah, those people might get an unfair advantage, just like a guy with like really long legs gets an unfair advantage if he's doing long distance running or whatever. Or someone with you know a crazy upper body strength gets an unfair advantage. I guess you call it unfair in boxing. I mean. There, there are, th but that's it's not that. unfair because it's just like, well, that's. I mean, actually, yeah, in a way, it is unfair. Now that you mention it, there's a there's a sports writer I follow who says athletic talent is cheating, which is a purposefully funny, paradoxical thing to say. But like, okay, in fighting, there's some guys who have incredible natural gifts, like their genetics yeah. are amazing. Their reaction time shaves off tenths of a second from the normal, from the human average. They can generate power and speed in ways that ordinary human musculoskeletal structures simply cannot. And sometimes, and some of these things, it just happens. There's no reason for yeah. it. You could train every day of your life as hard as you can. And, um, you will never have like Yoel Romero is a great example in mixed martial arts. You will never have his natural gifts. But and why is it hard to imagine then that there's a compliment to that kind of just like natural giftedness in say the athletic domain finds its complement in the aesthetic domain that some things just have a kind of does. natural unearned beauty. Well, look, um, 
So Hillman in his piece writes that beauty is an inherent radiance that's all that's that's inherent to the world itself, inherent mm-hmm. to the world and its data. Mm-hmm. They're on display always, a display that evokes an aesthetic response. He goes on, this inherent radiance lights up more translucently, more intensively within certain events, particularly those events that aim to seize it and reveal it, such as artworks. Okay. So in other words, what he's arguing there is that beauty is it's something I say in my book. Beauty is the quality we ascribe to things when we see them for what they really are. And I, I do believe that. I do mm. believe that, that God, uh, quote unquote, sees the universe as intrinsically beautiful. And that, that's something we could discuss. The book of Job has a great part about that. But anyways, so, um, but I don't, think it, I don't think that we can equate the type of beauty we're talking with uh, physical attractiveness as it can be measured in, for example, performance assessment between different groups and different places. Oh, this person has like more symmetry in their face, therefore they make more money. That's true, but that's not what we're talking about because a lot of those people do not <laughs> manifest beauty. But ultimately, we, we all know this, the most beautiful people we've met, if we're just talking about physical beauty, are rarely specimens of this kind of perfect symmetry that is talked about in psychological circles where they're trying to assess performance on the basis of beauty. I just don't think it's true. Okay. I think that beauty is always about singular people. That person, you, you met them once, yeah, they, yeah, they, were, they look decent. There's nothing wrong with them. But then you meet them a few more, and all of a sudden you see this, beautiful, this beauty in them. And what, our, what I would argue is that when you see that, you're seeing them. You're seeing the actual them. And the beauty part is just the sign that you're seeing something for what it is. That's okay. what beauty is. So it has nothing to do with traits or qualities or particular traits. Okay, so then what about Duchamp's fountain? Like we teed off on that thing in our but i think uh, i made episode. this exact argument in that, in that yeah but you know you know the first time we talked about duchamp's fountain we we're like okay well the standard way to argue for it on aesthetic grounds is that duchamp is framing a little bit of mundane ugly everyday reality just a plumbing fixture and in so doing and framing it he allows us to see that radiance that's in all things Sure. Well, that yeah. would be the John Cage sort of interpretation, right? That's certainly how Cage, the lesson that Cage took from Duchamp. Um, but we were shitting all over Duchamp's fountain. And I remember saying at the beginning, yeah, people make that argument, but I don't feel like making that argument. Well, we were talking from within a particular cultural discourse, which is uh-huh. the artistic tradition. Uh, but but ultimately, the beauty that we're discussing in the first instance, when we talked about the innate, he's showing us the innate beauty of all things. That's not in a question. That's not about art at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a question about nature. And so it, what he was doing was basically saying, I mean, the, 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 the favorable or positive interpretation of Duchamp is to say that he was reminding us that beauty exists outside of art, even in urinals. So in other words, he's and making an and, argument. And, and we've had listeners write in to us to say, yeah, I think you were being a bit unfair to Duchamp. And they've said basically that. Yeah. Well, I agree with that. That doesn't change the fact that I think Duchamp's artwork, insofar as it's an artwork within the tradition of Western art, has done incredible damage to the artistic tradition and has is fundamentally boring Uh Unless you choose to interpret it as not a work of art, but just an object that manifests beauty like all objects. So it's just, I don't see a contradiction there at all. It's just two different conversations. One is about the intrinsic beauty of matter itself. And the other conversation is about uh, what this particular 
uh, gesture within this particular tradition has done to that tradition. Okay, but now that you now you seem to be making a distinction between the intrinsic beauty in all matter and the beauty that is in art, and that those are two different things. No, I'm saying exactly what Hillman says. This inherent radiance that's in all matter lights up more translucently, more intensively within certain events, particularly those events that aim to seize and reveal it, such as artworks. Mm, okay. That's all art is. Art is just a way for us to bring out the intrinsic beauty that's in nature. I mean, that's what all of that's what my book was all about, really. And so but, you say but, that yeah. the Duchamp's urinal does reveal beauty in the one context, but not in the other. Well, yeah, I think all things reveal beauty in that other context. So it it's works. That, so it works as an object in this universe that is made of the same stuff as everything else in this universe, namely, uh, correct. It's namely not framed. Beauty. Yeah. It can um, be framed. But um, as, as, as one of these like occasions or like a gizmo for allowing that beauty to shine forth more radiantly, which is what Hillman says art is and what you're, you know, like vouching for that. Right. Then you're saying that Duchamp's fountain doesn't do that very well. I'm, so, I'm saying that within the tradition of art... Duchamp's fountain has served to place the concept over the affect, and therefore we have lost sight of this entire discussion in far, so far as art's concerned. Mm -hmm. Nobody's talking about art at all anymore. Nobody's talking about beauty at all anymore. But they could. because of Duchamp. But they could. Of course they could. They, just, they could. But they don't. <laughs> they don't because what Duchamp has done, what Duchamp does with that gesture is that he subordinates nature to human concepts. But I don't want to just talk about artistic beauty. I wanted to talk talk about a little bit about about Aphrodite because I've been thinking about her in this context. Uh, she's she's Delphine, my daughter's new idol. She loves Aphrodite. She's always talking about Aphrodite. She wants to be Aphrodite. And uh, I was surprised by my reaction. At first, I was like, no, no, because Aphrodite is often portrayed as exactly the type of generic beauty that we were talking about earlier, right? right? Uh, this kind of hot chick, right? Like, but but Aphrodite is actually it's, it's, she's a very interesting goddess, and um, I'm reading Delphine uh, Dolaire's Greek myths right now. Oh, that's a great wonderful, book, wonderful book for children about the Greek myths, and so that's one, one of, of those things, books for children that adults can read with just as much profit as children can. Yeah, and the the, the edition we got has beautiful artwork. I mm -hmm. love it. So I was reading it to her last night and she wanted to hear about Aphrodite. So I read her uh, the part about Aphrodite's birth. And so Dolaire tries to sanitize the myths a bit. So the actual theogony, is it, is, did Hesiod do the theogony? I believe he did. <laughs> My classics knowledge is. So in the theogony, Aphrodite is born of the sea foam that builds up around um, Uranus's severed junk. Right, because when Cronus castrates his father, Uranus, the sky, uh, his 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 phallus, his junk falls into the ocean, and then this this foam builds up around it, and Aphrodite sprouts spontaneously from spontaneously from the form. But Dolaire doesn't want to write that in his children's book. So what he says is that of all the gods, Aphrodite is the only one who is unbegotten, which is still true. She is not begotten by the other gods or the titans. She's born from the sea foam. She arises spontaneously and then is presented to the gods who then fall in love with her and make her, that, make her one of them. I find that very interesting. That what it's is saying, interesting. Yeah, for two reasons. The first reason that I see is that 
um, beauty is unbegotten, which means beauty is not a construct of any mind. Beauty is something that always pre-exists or that emerges. And it emerges in the foam, which means it emerges in the surface of things. The foam floats upon the unfathomable ocean. So beauty is something that ex expresses itself in the surfaces of things, which means in that part of things that you immediately, in, in, in total immediacy, interact with. And the other thing that Hillman writes in his piece is that without Aphrodite, we would not, the gods would not be visible because we can only see the gods through beauty, their beauty, their sublimity. And so uh, if we didn't have Aphrodite, the gods would be invisible to us. And I found that interesting because she comes after the gods, but she's one of those, those instances of the virtual we're talking about. When she reveals itself, she reveals herself as having always been there somehow. And so if beauty is the unbegotten, if beauty is, is, is admired even by the gods, beauty is not uh, a product or, uh, of any intelligence. Beauty is precisely that which conditions visibility, intelligibility itself. Beauty is the, the space in which things become intelligible. And I found that a strong argument, at least from a mythic perspective, for an aesthetic universe. And this is, gets back to the line that we started with. It is always, re beauty has always remained indefinable because it bears sensate witness to what is fundamentally beyond human con comprehension. Right. I it love that. Exactly. It yeah. bears sensate witness to what is fundamentally beyond human comprehension. That's not the same thing as like the Kantian thing, what is beyond human com comprehension, which is like, as it were, sealed off from us, as if we're in this kind of bubble. You know, no. it's just like, it's rather that, that that great outside is projecting itself into us, into yes. everything. Not only that, but also asserting that, that us and our little bubble is itself constituted of that stuff, of that yes. non-human stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This is something Cezanne was big on, like the landscape before man, as Cezanne said, like when you're painting a landscape, there are no humans in it. But the whole thing is apprehended from a human perspective, but the absence of humans makes it alien. Like, it's hard to explain this without getting into a big discussion, but basically what Cezanne was trying to do was to capture uh, our world, including human artifacts, from an alien perspective, from a perspective preceding the intrusion of human preconceptions. But those... Strangely, that landscape includes human preconceptions. Even the human can be seen from an from a non-human standpoint, and that's where we encounter beauty. So it's precisely it's 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 anti-Kantian. It's saying that the thing in itself is the most immediate accessible thing there is. It's and we we know it when we encounter beauty. If there's something kind of salvational, not salvational, healing. Yeah, there's something healing in this. You know, find the beauty in you. Find the beauty in the people around you. You know, what you were talking about, Cezanne, looking at the world almost from this alien perspective. It's this alien perspective in which everything is lit up from within, even human preconceptions. Like, if you could really live like that, even the most unlovely aspects of our fellow human beings would come to seem endearing, beautiful, necessary. You know, everything could be such a, as a word that does not come easily to the lips of a jaded, wised up postmodern, but, you know, redeemed. Yeah. I read a beautiful interview with Christian Wyman recently, who is a poet. 
uh, that I wasn't didn't know about. Um, Matt Carden tweeted an article, uh, a link, and I read the article. I thought it was fantastic. And uh, I think he's a Christian. Wyman is at least he's he he talks about uh, religious ideas. Um, at one point, at one point, he says, and this is in in, in this he echoes a very secular writer, um, Sheldahl, uh, who says beauty reconciles us with life. At one point, he says, it is crazy not to celebrate something that reconciles us with life, which is precisely what he argues beauty does. And uh, Wyman writes, this is from his book, He Held Radical Light. He writes, I have long thought, because I've long felt, that the perfection of art implied or even anticipated some ultimate order one need not call God, but could call out to nonetheless, that a feeling that found its true form could align the heart with the stars. And this is one of the things that I think beauty does. And I think this is something that might resonate with people, hopefully. It, it, certainly, reson- it certainly makes sense to me. Beauty is, is that moment where the is and the ought coincide. So what is and what ought to be become one thing in moments of beauty. In fact, that might be as close a, to a definition of beauty as I can get. And it's the reconciliation of this distinction between the is and the ought. And and this is in the beginning of his article, Sheldahl writes, um, mind and body become indivisible in beauty, which is true. The intelligence inherent in things, the weird intelligence that would link up, I'm just thinking about Van Gogh's last painting again, the crows with the wheat field and the sky, all these things working together disparately, but somehow coalescing into this one image. That inherent implicate, implicate intelligence that, that's on display in the painting and the actual materials the random disparate materials that make up the various parts of the, of the scenery that's being depicted, these things become somehow unified. In other words, every instance of beauty is an, a synchronicity. An ought and an is become one thing. And, and for that reason, um, uh, it reconciles us with life. And interestingly, Wyman goes on to say that he's reading, he's teaching the book of Job. And as we know, Job gets, his life is, just God and the devil just fuck him over completely. He loses everything. He's covered in boils. His life is shit. He's broke. He's lost his family. He crawls into the desert and challenges God. He says, God, I've served you so well. Why has this happened to me? What is justice if, if this can happen to me? And then God famously comes up and says, who the fuck are you to question me? Didn't, were you there when I lay the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I, I hung up the stars to the cheers and, and, and accolades of the sons of God? And he goes on and on for pages and pages about how beautiful his creation is. And what Wyman says, he says that beauty is a severe salvation. Or he doesn't say it. He says, it's a kind of severe salvation. I'm teaching the book of Job now. And Job keeps asking, what is justice? What is justice? And God's answer is essentially beauty. Justice is the whale and the horse. It's, look at these fantastic things I made. Look how beautiful they are. There's your justice. It's not a, a kind of consciousness that feels tenderly towards you exactly. Your only consolation is to reconcile your will to it, to necessity. And, and, and then again, here he's joined by Nietzsche, who said that the world is only justified aesthetically. And I think that it's only at the level of beauty that things finally make sense. And, the, and Solzhenitsyn's famous quip there, or Dostoevsky, I think, was the first who said it, beauty will save the world, I think is rooted in this sentiment that on some level, it's only in the beautiful that things finally make sense. Yeah, you know, and there is a low-hanging fruit objection that you will find among a lot of contemporary intellectuals 
um, not dissimilar to your objection to uh, Bernardo Castrop's idealism, where he's like, okay, we'll look at this, you know, the protruding rib cages of the starving victims of the Ukrainian famine. Is are those just ripples at the mind at large? Right. You know, somebody could say, yeah. So, um, you know, war atrocities. Uh, that is, that's be- are you saying that's beautiful or are you saying that those atrocities are somehow redeemed by the fact that, you know, there is beauty? And the, and the question of Job and the way you're framing it is the question of Job is kind of an answer to that. And now, of course, some people have famously found God's answer to Job to be a non-answer. Yeah. That, that God is basically saying, yeah, shit happens. Which you well, know, I think for and I, I think for political people is always going to be unacceptable. There's like you can't just say shit happens. That's quietism. You have to be willing to make shit happen. And so I think you know there's going to be a point of view from which this kind of I don't know if aestheticism is the right word for the point of view we're developing here, but this is certainly a very aesthetic, uh, positive view um, is uh, amounts potentially at least to a kind of political quietism. Yeah. Well, I yes and no. I think yeah. I think you could impl- you can interpret it that way. Um, at the same time, let me put my thoughts together here because this is a real challenging thing for me personally. I believe it's incontrovertible that shit happens. It's incontrovertible that some dude and some poor guy in India a few years ago was struck by a meteorite that. <laughs> Left its yeah. You've mentioned <laughs> this was before. was launched yeah. millions of years ago and traveled through space only to hit him in the head and, and kill him. Or I don't know if it hit him in the head, but killed him. This happens. Shit happens. The world. So whatever we reconcile ourselves to has to include that fact that this is happening. Um, Nietzsche says the world is unmoral. I like that word. It's not immoral. It's unmoral. And I don't think you could. You could possibly argue that the world is moral. The problem is that the Castro way, or at least a lot of that type of discourse, goes in the direction that uh, it's a kind of theodicy that if you only saw it, it would be morally correct for these things to happen. I'm saying that, no, I'm not saying that the protruding ribcages of the starving children is somehow moral because it's beautiful. I'm saying that beauty is amoral. Yeah. And the universe is amoral. Morality is a different question. Morality is about what we think the world should be like. But And when I say that moments of beauty unify the is and the ought, I'm not talking about what things ought to be for us. I'm saying the way things ought to be according to who knows what. It's just, we just know in those moments that things are this way. And I believe it's possible um, to be even to live atrocities and come to some realizations like that. I've read about people who've lived atrocities and came to the same, have come to the same realization. Two examples being Dostoevsky and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, both of whom spent time in concentration camps in Siberia, and both of whom came out saying beauty will save the world. So if their testimony is worth nothing, I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. By coincidence, today in the undergraduate music history class that I teach, we were talking about Olivier Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time. Right. Beautiful piece of music. A beautiful it. piece of music composed in a German prisoner of war camp. Right. This is music written from the heart of this 
unimaginably evil system, you know, the Nazi empire. It is a piece of music that in the most direct imaginable way bears witness to the sufferings of people under the boot of fascism. But it's a rapturous contemplation of time from a kind of ecstatic mystical perspective. You know, it's like an attempt to understand time the way angels would understand time as a completed structure where everything has already happened. You know, everything takes part of that vast crystalline structure and everything goes its own way. Everything harmonizes and yet everything is kind of doing its own thing. It's such a wonderful thing to do to to emerge from this harrowing experience and create something that is such an ecstatic contemplation of everything. Right. And that doesn't justify what the Nazis did. No, to of them. course not. Yeah. That's that's and that's where I disagree with the monists who necessarily because they're monists have to um uh moralize evil. Even if they don't, if they refuse to do so explicitly, they need to do so implicitly. The, 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 the thing is that an aesthetic universe is a universe where evil can remain evil and good can remain good. It's, an, it's a universe where morality has contingent but real existence. You can't just reduce everything to uh, a, a kind of moral telos. And that's precisely the point. We don't live in a moral universe. If we lived in a, in a moral universe, it would be an evil universe. But yeah. our universe is not moral. It's transmoral. And so evil remains evil and good remains good. And But all of that takes root in a fundamental thesis of beauty, a kind of like primordial beauty. And who would deny that even, at least in their expression, that even evil can have beauty? Hmm. There's just no doubt about that because we've all seen uh, I don't know. Like, let's think of a, we've all read uh, Macbeth, haven't we? Yeah. Or at least we're yeah. all familiar with it. We're all familiar with the Iliad, which is about war. Uh, we're all familiar with um, Saving Private Ryan, the fantastic opening, mm -hmm. which is as horrible as it's going to get as far as like film goes, but also undeniably beautiful, horribly, terribly beautiful. Yeah, it's true. And maybe that's another reason to repress beauty. You always repress beauty on moral grounds. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.